The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Updating Our Cardio-Oncology Skills in the Cancer Immunotherapy Era, Team-Based Strategies for Risk Assessment, Diagnosis, and Management of Myocarditis and Other Cardiac Immune-Related Adverse Events. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SFP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thanks, everybody, for coming in. Uh, I know it's very early in the morning, uh, but for one, I'm excited about probably the first in-person meeting and many seeing many people, friends uh, from before through this and uh, during the meeting. So we thought this session uh, would be in good to have a cardio-oncology uh, CME session and specifically focusing on cancer immunotherapies. And I'm here uh, with Doug Johnson, who I introduce uh, uh, to you momentarily. As some of you know, I moved recently uh, to UCSF, although I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Johnson uh, for uh, six years or so when I was at Vanderbilt. And it's good to have an oncologist at these, uh, to do this with, because he can tell us uh, everything that's going on in the oncology space. And so it's a great to be here. As I mentioned, the agenda today, while we can cover a lot of facets of cardio-oncology, we're going to be focusing on immunotherapies. As Doug will walk us through this, these drugs are really revolutionizing how we treat patients with cancer. And so we're going to go through some of the basic and foundational concepts, and Doug is going to walk us through that, Dr. Johnson. We're going to have a number of cases that we can walk through and discuss, and then uh, we're going to conclude at the end. So, uh, and I think the uh, and I think a lot of this for people who are here is probably uh, review. But uh, immunotherapies have really revolutionized therapy uh, for oncology patients. I remember uh, probably more than 12 years ago, I was at MD Anderson and Cesar, who's here in the audience, and this was not a topic that we ever discussed, right? And so now about uh, close to 50% of the patients are getting immune-based therapies for treating cancer. Often these are combined with traditional cardiotoxic agents. And as a result, we're seeing completely new uh, presentations of disease, uh, immune-related adverse events, which Doug will walk us through. And I think uh, there's a lot to learn uh, for us both uh, in the near and uh, long-term future, especially as these drugs are being combined. Uh, so that's sort of the uh, uh, sort of the gaps that we thought, at least uh, where our uh, this meeting would sort of cover. And so it's great; it's my great pleasure to introduce Doug Johnson. I had the pleasure of walking to Doug's office in 2016 uh, uh, as I had landed at Vanderbilt. And uh, I learned very quickly he is probably knows more about immunotherapy than anybody else I've ever worked with. So, and he treats these patients regularly as a melanoma physician. So, Doug? Well, thanks, uh, Javid. And thanks uh, to all of you for coming. Thanks for welcoming an outsider and oncologist to the group. And thanks to Javid for teaching me that the heart is more than just the organ that pumps immunotherapy to the cancer. Let's start off. What are immune checkpoint inhibitors? Again, as Javid said, some of this may be reviewed to some of you, but just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. So traditionally, cancer treatments have actually targeted the cancer. Obviously, that's, you know, intuitive. But checkpoint inhibitors actually do something a little bit different. They actually specifically target molecules on T cells to activate T cells, hopefully against the cancer. 
Now, there's a number of ways to activate T-cells. If you think about a car, you know, there are two ways to make it go faster. You can step on the gas, which is on the left side of the screen, uh, things that activate and, and turn up the T-cell, or you can remove the brakes. So you can remove negative regulators of T-cell function. Um, and these all are not created equally. We actually don't have any FDA-approved agents on the left side of the screen, the, the T-cell activators. But we do have now three FDA-approved, uh, or actually four if you count the ligand PD-1, uh, approved antibodies that block these negative regulators and, and turn up the T-cells by, by removing the brakes, so to speak. The LAG3 agents is the newest one that was just FDA approved earlier this year, but we'll mostly focus on the CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade. And so to drill down a little bit more into the mechanism here, again, don't worry, there won't be too many cellular diagrams here for those of you who hate those kind of things, but there, these, these checkpoints are not created exactly equally. So CTLA-4, for example, really functions more when T-cells first encounter, I'm sorry, when antigen-presenting cells like dendritic cells first encounter the antigen and show them to the T-cells. And CTLA-4 helps the T-cell more or less conceptually determine whether to go after that antigen, decide whether that antigen's foreign and needs to be attacked. On the other hand, the PD-1, PD-L1 agents really work at the level of the tumor. So these are T-cells that are, have made it to the tumor, they're ready to eliminate the tumor, but the tumor has one last line of defense, and that's by expressing this molecule PD-L1. And PD-1 that binds to PD-1 shuts down the T-cell. So blocking that interaction hopefully activates T-cells in a more specific way against the tumor, whereas CTLA-4 is a bit more nonspecific. Now, these are just the names of the drugs. So again, don't worry about uh, writing these down or anything like that. Uh, these, these slides will be available. So if you ever you know, need, need a reference on all the MABs and MIBs that we use in oncology, you know, these are the list of the, the immune checkpoint inhibitors. And you can see there's, there's four classes, the PD-1 and PD-L1 molecules, which work approximately the same as far as response rates and toxicities. And then the anti-CTLA-4, which is now mostly used in combination with PD-1 and the anti-LAG-3 molecule there. Now, of course, you know, we have these nice mechanisms. How well do these actually work in the clinic? Well, it turns out that immune checkpoint inhibitors, as even just the anti-PD-1 drugs as a single agent, are actually work quite well across a number of cancer types. And this is a list of FDA-approved indications for single-agent anti-PD-1 or PD-L1. And <clears throat> depending on how you slice and dice the tumor types, it's roughly about 20 different cancer types that these are FDA-approved in. And you can see some very common cancers there. You can see non-small cell lung cancer, which of course is the leading cause of cancer death for one, uh, but certainly melanoma, renal cell carcinoma, and a whole range of other kinds of cancer. There's of course a few gaps there. We don't use it yet really for prostate cancer or some many types of breast cancer or many types of colon cancer, but you can see it's made a massive difference in how we're treating a whole number of different cancers. Now, if you know oncologists, uh, if you have any oncologists in your life, you know that if we have one drug that works and we have other drugs that work, we like to just put them together. That's our natural tendency. Um, and so uh, we've done that with uh, anti-PD-1 drugs. And, and in fact, it turns out that they are really synergistic with a lot of other, or at least additive with a lot of other types of oncology therapies. And that's true for the more traditional therapies like chemotherapy in the bottom right. It's also true for other targeted therapies and then also true for immunotherapy plus immunotherapy combinations. So combinations of immune checkpoint inhibitors. And again, this is just a list of FDA approved um, uh, indications for these therapies. And so as Javed said, this is important when we're thinking about cardiovascular toxicities, when you have one set of agents like BRAF and MEK inhibitors in melanoma that can cause decreased ejection fraction, and then you're also throwing on an anti-PD-1 or PD-L1 drug to that. 
And then we're actually moving not just in metastatic disease, this is actually moving earlier and earlier in treatment. So we've been doing this a long time now in melanoma, but it's actually moved towards lung cancer and other types of more common cancers. So and this list will only grow. This will almost certainly not fit in this slide within a few years as we start using these therapies earlier and earlier and try to prevent metastatic disease rather than treat it. And again, just, just one survival curve, I promise. Of course, oncologists, in, in addition to combining treatments, we like to show survival curves. And so this is just the one I'll show today. And, and here's what you, this is just a remarkable curve. I'll just you know, very quickly take you through it. This was a phase three study comparing ipilimumab, the anti-CTLA-4 in orange, with nivolumab, the light blue, uh, the PD-1 drug in, in blue, and then the dark blue, the combination of the two. And what you could see is, I don't know if any of you remember seeing metastatic melanoma patients, you know, 10 plus years ago. And of course, this was just an absolute death sentence. This, even when I went through residency and early fellowship, you know, there's really nothing we had for these patients. Well, this is now metastatic melanoma patients. And this is actually almost 10 years out for these patients. And you're having basically 50% having long-term survival. And so we don't, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, we don't necessarily see this for every kind of cancer. We're not curing, you know, huge, huge numbers of non-small cell lung cancer patients, but we're still seeing 20, 30% of patients that are treated with these drugs having very long-term survival. And as we get better and better combinations, hopefully this curve will continue to rise um, and, and we'll be able to show you uh, even, even better survival curves as the years go on. This is actually just the tip of the iceberg, too. I showed you that diagram that had all these T-cell checkpoints. Uh, and, of course, there's so many other different types of it, tr cancer treatments, both immunotherapy and non-immunotherapy, that these drugs are being combined with. And so it's, it's very likely that this, you know, again, these slides of FDA-approved indications and so forth will continue to grow, um, that we'll also continue to use more and more aggressive combinations as, as our, again, our natural tendency as oncologists to continue to combine things. So we'll likely start to see triplets, quadruplets of these regimens, which, again, will only heighten the, the risks of toxicities, um, as hopefully, as well as the long-term survival outcomes for these patients as well. And, and honestly, as, as the survival improves, managing the toxicity has, of course, become increasingly important because these patients do have that chance for long-term survival. We're not talking about somebody with, a, you know, unfortunately, a, a median survival of three to six months anymore. We're talking about somebody who could live a normal lifespan. Let's quickly just talk about the toxicities from checkpoint inhibitors, including the cardiovascular ones, which, of course, are the most relevant here. And to start off, we'll, we'll bring, it a, bring a case in. So this is a patient who uh, came in with shortness of breath, and, and the patient has metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, uh, fairly recently diagnosed, uh, also has a number of reasons to potentially have respiratory problems. They have metastatic uh, lung cancer with uh, involvement of the lungs. They've got a pleural effusion at baseline. They've got a history of DVT, and they've also got coronary artery disease. And so they've come in to the emergency room with uh, sort of increasing for a few days uh, shortness of breath, dry cough, and fatigue. You can see their medications, and, and they have been started on immune checkpoint inhibitors approximately three months ago. And so, uh, Javed, what, what, would this, uh, what would you be worried about for this patient? Yeah, with shortness of breath, again, being cardiologist, I think of all the cardiac things, but I guess the other point to consider is there are a number of cardiac things that can uh, present with shortness of breath. Uh, but among the cardiac issues, anything is fair game. I think that's an important point. Uh, uh, with respect to ischemia, myocarditis, if you're thinking cardiac, but I think the most, uh, I think the important point also is to think uh, of issues that are non-cardiac in this patient. 
Yeah, that's one reason I don't care, take care of lung cancer patients because they have just so many reasons to have shortness of breath and it's, it's, it's really, really tough for these patients. Well, here's some more data. So this patient had uh, some hypoxia, as you can see on room air, uh, was borderline tachycardic and had some crackles on exam. Uh, EKG was pretty unremarkable, unchanged from baseline, but the CT angiogram was much more remarkable. There was no PE, but you can see uh, that, you know, and the patient actually seemed to be responding to their, to their cancer treatment, uh, but uh, there's multifocal ground glass opacities in both lungs, and the labs also, you can see, were, were fairly uh, unremarkable. And there's a, a sample of the imaging. And so this is actually actually a, a diagnosis of immune checkpoint inhibitor related pneumonitis, inflammation of the lungs caused by immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so the way we treat that is hold the treatment and give prednisone, uh, high, high do, relatively high doses of prednisone. And, uh, and so we'll go through a little bit more. So toxicities from checkpoint inhibitors are pretty different from other types of cancer therapy side effects. So you can see with chemotherapy, you have almost all patients get some sort of side effects. They're pretty well described. So think about things like cytopenias and nausea, vomiting and hair loss and, you know, a few other, you know, regimen specific side effects. Uh, and again, it only affects a few or organs, but it's pretty predictable. So if somebody, you know, you, their patients are going to have cytopenias, you know, seven to 14 days after treatment and so forth. Um, and so you kind of know what you're getting, even though it's not great. Um, Immunotherapy is pretty different. In fact, most patients actually, especially treated with single agent, have really not many toxicities. They actually do quite well day-to-day uh, -day on treatment. Uh, but when side effects happen, they're pretty unpredictable. They can happen uh, you know, in, in really any organ. They can happen almost at any time. They can happen seven days into treatment, or they could happen you know, seven years into treatment for the rare patient that gets that much treatment. And they can even happen a few, you know, a few months after stopping treatment. So they can, it's pretty unpredictable, and, and, and it's, it's harder to know what you get, even though day-to-day -day the experience tends to be much, much better than, than with something like chemotherapy. So what are uh, these, these toxicities? Well, the simple way to think about it in, in my you know, simple, simplistic way is thinking, okay, the goal here is you're stimulating T cells against the cancer. Well, you can have some collateral damage where T cells that are specific to the organ or if there's some sort of environmental insult happens and the T cells actually attack the organ and you get autoimmune-like toxicity. Now, we still don't, can't predict which patient will get what toxicity, unfortunately, uh, but there's a few risk factors. So autoimmune disease that's pre-existing, somebody has rheumatoid arthritis, they'll likely flare on treatment, for example. Also, the risk factors we talked about, if you remove more checkpoints, you're going to get more risk of toxicity. And so that's one of the things that we'll certainly hit on uh, more in, in a little bit is that more aggressive combinations lead to more toxicities. As I, I briefly mentioned, these toxicities can affect any organ system. So certainly the heart uh, is, is very serious when it happens, but we also see in, in our clinics that this, this affects the thyroid, this affects the skin, the colon, the liver. It's almost more of a question of what organs does it not affect. I think I've not seen prostate and uterus, but that's probably just because I haven't looked hard enough, to be honest. These can really affect almost any organ system. The timing is very variable too. There are a few patterns, but you look at the confidence intervals here and you look at the ranges, uh, it's really hard to hang your hat on even, even some of these general patterns. Certainly rash can be very early and things like pneumonitis tends to occur a little bit later, uh, but it's pretty variable. And certainly when you're using combination immunotherapy, all bets are off. I've certainly seen patients get pneumonitis a few days into treatment. And so it's, 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 it's almost a crapshoot. There are some patterns, but certainly hard to, uh, to, you know, to use that to really make a diagnosis for an individual patient. 
And as we talked about, these, these long-term survival for these patients is making this really important, not only to deal with the acute and chronic toxicities, but also to think about how do these drugs actually affect the immune system? If they're reshaping the immune system to get rid of the cancer long-term, uh, which is, of course, the, the very positive side of, this, of these treatments, you know, what are they doing to the other types of immune processes? What about atherosclerosis? What about uh, neuroinflammation? All, all these kind of questions are certainly something that, that we're all actively exploring, but certainly an important uh, possible uh, consideration. How do we treat this? I, I briefly mentioned this before, but certainly it, this depends on how severe the side effect is. So if you're talking about mild toxicities, like a mild skin rash, well, you'll just probably deal with this symptomatically. You know, give the patient some over-the-counter corticosteroids. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, or, over the topical corticosteroids. But whereas the toxicities get more severe than you were talking about high doses of a prednisone or equivalent, um, potentially admitting the patient to the hospital for IV steroids, and then certainly multidisciplinary care is really important. So we'll go to our second case quickly here. Uh, this is a 63-year-old woman with stage 4 melanoma. Actually, this, this patient was one that really got us very turned on to these types of side effects. She was recently diagnosed with metastatic melanoma and had just started immune checkpoint inhibitors 12 days earlier. And she came to the emergency room with fairly nonspecific symptoms, again, not so unlike our pneumonitis patient earlier. Uh, shortness of breath, some pleuritic chest pain, some cough. Uh, Javed, uh, you know, maybe a broken record since this is uh, not, the, not too different of a presentation, but any thoughts on this patient? Doesn't have a cardiac history, doesn't have obvious pulmonary uh, issues either. Yeah, so great. Again, uh, acknowledging the fact that you have to be very broad in your differential, and the only difference between this and the other patient is that patient was a lung cancer patient. So you think of all the issues that come with uh, cancer itself advancing in the lung which can cause shortness of breath. Here we're dealing with melanoma, which is probably less uh, cardiopulmonary specific. Uh, but again, the, the differential here is broad. If you're thinking cardiac issues, uh, I think looking for cardiac damage with biomarkers early on. But again, thinking broadly about the differential, like we did with the first patient, is really how I would approach this. Well, here's the physical exam. I probably should have given you this before asking the question, but it really honestly didn't add a whole lot. So the patient was uh, looked a little bit in distress, had a little bit of a fast respiratory rate, but was not hypoxic, uh, didn't have a fever, uh, and, and really had not a whole lot of uh, uh, physical exam findings. However, the laboratory data and the EKG were, were quite remarkable. As you can see, the troponin was quite elevated, as was the CK and the liver function tests. The echocardiogram was pretty normal, but the ECG not so much. There was initial, uh, the initial ECG just showed some LVH, but rapidly developed into first, first degree heart block, and then on the top right, third degree heart block, and then finally ventricular tachycardia over the course of about a day. Uh, so very dramatic echocardiograph, I mean, uh, electrocardiographic progression there. Uh, yeah, even, even that someone like me can, can tell us is really not so good. And this patient had a biopsy uh, and was found to have uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor-related myocarditis and also had uh, peripheral muscle involvement. And as you can see, this, well, as you might be able to see, there's a, the, the patient underwent an autopsy eventually, as you'll, as you'll uh, as well talk about. And really, the, this was very specific to muscle. The smooth muscle with the black arrow really had no involvement, but the skeletal muscle uh, and the green area, arrow was just completely obliterated by the immune system. And this was the patient's clinical course. Uh, they came in, uh, they were started on, uh, on steroids, but despite that, the, uh, the arrhythmias and the troponin worsened, and unfortunately, within five days, the patient died. 
So cardiac immune-related adverse events, we'll talk about uh, myocarditis is certainly the big one, but there certainly can be arrhythmias and other complications, as Javed will talk about. And so with that, I'll hand it over to Javed to talk about the heart. So it's good, good that you have somebody here that's not me to talk about that. I bet he can do a better job than I can or many of us because I've, uh, and Doug uh, has really become a cardiologist in many ways over the last few years. I wanted to take a step back, however, before we get started talking about this specific toxicity. And this is a figure I had a few years ago for what we think of as cardio-oncology. Now, a number of experts are in the room, Cesar, uh, uh, Dr. Porter, many other people. But I think the issues are uh, uh, there are many ways in which cardiac disease and cancer intersect. Uh, so you can think of ways where there are tumors that are create that come in the heart, and there are cases where the cancer itself can cause cardiac disease. We see this in the case of plasma cell dyscrasias that cause uh, 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 amyloidosis, but also patients with neuroendocrine tumors who get valvular disease and who have what we call carcinoid heart disease. So I think it's important to note that outside of therapies themselves, uh, cancer itself can have cardiovascular issues. I think the other thing for us to appreciate is that this uh, at the top here, that cancer and heart disease being the number one and number two causes of death in any society, actually share a number of cardiac risk, a number of risk factors. So for example, some of this is very basic. So for example, if you smoke, you have a high risk of having lung cancer, but also having cardiovascular disease. But what's been really interesting is over the last few years, we now recognize things like obesity, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, classic cardiovascular risk factors uh, are actually important uh, uh, cancer risk factors as well. And this has really been very interesting. I remember the few years ago at this very meeting, not this meeting, but in the ASCO meeting, the president of ASCO got up and said obesity has replaced cigarette smoking as a number one preventable cause for cancer, so not cardiovascular disease he was talking about. And this has especially become apparent over the last few years with genetic predispositions. These can be inherited mutations that mom and dad give us, but also somatic mutations that we gain over time uh, and so the classic example of that is a condition called CHIP or clon clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential where you have mutations that arise in your blood cells that are now we recognize to be important uh, uh, cardio uh, cardiovascular risk factors. And oncologists have known for many years these mutations can increase the risk of blood cancers. Obviously, all of this becomes very important for our many, many cancer survivors. So we have 18 million Americans in the U. Uh, so that's obviously just in the U.S. That's 5% of the U.S. population who are cancer survivors. Almost 4 million breast cancer survivors, almost 4 million prostate cancer survivors. And if you appreciate the fact that there are common risk factors that predispose you to cancer and heart disease, once you treat uh, the cancer part, you're going to be left with a lot of cardiovascular disease. And this is, I'm, I'm going through all of this for you to appreciate, even before we start talking about treatments and the specific issues treatments uh, have, uh, there's a lot of areas, uh, I think, for patients where cardiac disease and cancers intersect. 
But of course, this field has really exploded cardio-oncology over the last decade because of all the success our colleagues in oncology like Doug have had in terms of treating patients with cancer. And just to use the melanoma example, there was no treatment for melanoma a decade ago or uh, 12 years ago. Uh, but now there are a number of treatments besides immune checkpoint inhibitors, kinase inhibitors that can use for at least a subset of melanomas. And these can have a number of uh, cardiac and vascular effects. Uh, and I think that's really important to think about. I'm going to ex uh, uh, take this one step further and just focusing on the toxicities of specific therapies. It's a lot of stuff that we have to think about. Obviously, a lot of people think of anthracyclines and radiation at the top, but almost every breast cancer patient with, who goes on HER2-targeted therapy knows, we have to, uh, knows they have to get their heart monitored. We see VEGF inhibitors cause hypertension, heart failure, and thrombosis. And uh, again, I'm not going to go through every one of these, but really I think the point is as we uh, uh, combine ther immune checkpoint inhibitors and other immunotherapies, with different cancer types, we're putting these on top of therapies that they have their own inherent toxicities. And this is the clinical challenge I think we're going to have to face in the coming decade with respect to what does a, somebody with shortness of breath who's getting VEGF inhibitor plus a checkpoint inhibitor. In fact, we had a patient this past week at Vanderbilt uh, uh, can present with. So it's really something for us to think about. Uh, but again, just being focused, uh, we're going to focus on immunotherapies and specifically immune checkpoint inhibitors, which is, is a subset of uh, immune-based uh, uh, therapies. What we have learned over the last uh, five or six years is that uh, checkpoint inhibitors can cause a myriad of cardiovascular issues. Uh, uh, there was a very nice study led by Dr. Joely Salem looking at an international database of uh, drug-induced toxicities and focusing just on the checkpoint inhibitors. Five specific signals came out in terms of toxicities that are associated with checkpoint inhibitors. The most common one was myocarditis or inflammation of the heart, uh, 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 as you can see on the left. And this is something we're going to talk about through the most of the course of this, uh, 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 the rest of this talk. However, it's also important to recognize other toxicities arise from checkpoint inhibitors, which are not necessarily uh, uh, just manifestations of the myocarditis. For example, we recognize patients with checkpoint inhibitors for whatever reason, can have arrhythmias that may or may not be associated with myocarditis. Uh, patients may have vasculitis, and these can be often very deadly, again, which may not may be in the absence of, of myocarditis per se. So the, these, this is a patient that died suddenly from arrhythmias. Turns out the patient had no, on autopsy, had no myocarditis, but as you can see on the right here, there was significant inflammation around the vessels, and this is a small artery that's seen in the heart where you can appreciate the uh, paravascular lesions that exist there. Uh, in addition, as we've expanded indication for checkpoint inhibitors, we recognize patients may have pericardial disease and pericarditis. So this is a patient that presented to us 
uh, a few years ago after getting a checkpoint inhibitor, had sudden chest pain, didn't have much myocarditis per se, but as you can see on the MRI on the lower right here, the patient had uh, uh, pericardial disease and pericarditis. And finally, you can have patients who have uh, it, uh, cardiomyopathies that are not necessarily inflammatory or at least not myocarditis per se. And there have been increasing reports by a number of colleagues, including some great work by uh, our colleagues in France that show that patients may have non-inflammatory cardiomyopathies such as Takotsubo uh, that can present with checkpoint inhibitors. However, for the rest of this talk, we're going to focus more on the myocarditis, mostly because this is probably the one complication we have most experience with, and it's probably the most serious in the context of uh, 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 these drugs, especially as they're being used in combination. So our group in initially described uh, 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 in two patients who were being treated with melanoma who received checkpoint inhibitors patients who had significant myocarditis. And for those of you that don't look at the heart normally, on the left is a normal heart. You see nice uh, myocytes. You see nuclei. Those are the little blue dots that go with the cells. And the uh, muscle is generally fairly tight. There's not much white space in the middle. Whereas this was the, on the right here is the example of one of the patients with myocarditis. And this patient has what we call classic Dallas criteria for myocarditis. So on the right here, you can appreciate uh, infiltrates, little blue dots. These are not, not nuclei anymore, but rather immune infiltrates that come into the myocyte. I think you can also appreciate these white space here that's not that's no longer myocytes compared to what you see on the left. So that's dead myocytes, and so that's effectively the myocytes with the infiltrates. And the third triad of a Dallas criteria, which is histological criteria for myocarditis, is that these little blue dots, which are the immune cells, should be right next to the uh, uh, dead myocytes, which is the white space, and that's exactly what you have here. So these patients, by definition, had myocarditis. And we've learned a lot, even from those early cases, these patients, uh, these little blue dots, or which are the immune cells, are mostly T cells and macrophages, uh, again, consistent with myocarditis. When you do have myocarditis, there are two parts of the heart can go wrong. One is the pump effect of the heart. This is the heart being able to pump things, and you can have cardiomyopathy. On the other hand, you can have effects on the electrical system of the heart and you can have arrhythmias. For whatever reason, most of the cases that we see uh, with these patients with myocarditis, checkpoint inhibitor-associated myocarditis, have a lot of electrocardiographic abnormalities. And some nice work from Dr. Nealon uh, uh, at Mass General shows that about 50% of these patients can actually have a normal ejection fraction when they're uh, being evaluated. So this is really important to keep in mind. The incidence, uh, we think it's a little less than 1% uh, of all the patients who get checkpoint inhibitors. Although if you think about it, as we expand use of these drugs, and especially in combination therapy, that ends up being uh, a lot of uh, patients. We've 
really done a lot of work to try to figure out who and when these occur. Uh, in a large study looking at over 100 patients, the average time from the initial exposure to immune checkpoint inhibitors to the time of presentation was 25 to 30 days. That means most patients received one or two doses only of the drugs. And so these events are usually early. And for whatever reason, they're unpredictable. And I'll get to that momentarily. I told you only about 1% of the patients may have uh, uh, the myocarditis when you get combination treatment. The bad news is 50% of the patients die. So it's the mortality we continue to see is somewhere in the 40 to 50% range. We and others have looked for a lot of risk factors. Is it somebody with a bad heart to begin with? Is it somebody who uh, has rheumatological disease, so they have an autoimmune predisposition? The main risk factor we and others have been able to find is when you combine therapies, when you combine a CTLA-4 and a PD-1 inhibitor together is when you really see the myocarditis risk arise. Uh, many of the patients with myocarditis can have concomitant myositis, and many of the patients may also have concomitant mycenia-like gravis. And some good work being done by Dr. Joel E. Solomon France suggests this mycenia gravis is mean, not necessarily the classic mycenia gravis that we see, but it may be merely my, uh, severe mycitis that presents as mycenia gravis. And this is important clinically because these patients that are, have severe uh, myocarditis can often have significant myositis, and this can manifest as respiratory issues for the patient, and the patient may not be able to breathe comfortably, which is very important to identify these patients and intubate them if you need to. As I mentioned earlier from the previous slide, we are going to focus a lot about myocarditis, but it's also important to keep in mind that there are other issues that arise acutely with checkpoint inhibitors, pericarditis, vasculitis, and arrhythmias. And as I mentioned, these all have significant mortality. And so it's really important to define and uh, identify these patients early. Now, we've done a lot of work to try to identify uh, preclinical models uh, or mouse models of this form of myocarditis. And so one model that we think is particularly intriguing is a, a, a mouse model that we developed in our laboratory in collaboration with Jim Allison at MD Anderson. And these are mice where we have genetically knocked out or knocked down CTLA-4 and PD-1. And when you have a mouse that is haploinsufficient in CTLA-4 in a PD-1 knockout background, the mice are born, they're doing well, and suddenly you walk in after three or four weeks and the mice drop dead. And what's very interesting is that these are mostly affect female mice. But what's really, really interesting is these mice die for one reason and one reason only, and that's myocarditis. In fact, these mice have immune infiltrates that are certainly restricted to the uh, uh, cardiovascular system. And so this, to our, uh, in our hands, has proved a nice way to better understand the under pathophys underlying pathophysiology of the myocarditis. And I want to take a chance to just show you a few uh, updated slides. We recently had a paper in Nature. Uh, this is a very nice collaboration with Doc Johnson, who uh, did this, uh, has been doing this talk with me, as well as Dr. Justin Balko. 
And what we, we have used a lot of novel technologies to really define these immune infiltrates. And so what am I talking about here? When I showed you this previous slide, which is the mouse pathology slide of myocarditis, again, I hope you can appreciate these little blue dots that are consistent with what we see with myocarditis. But what this picture doesn't tell us is that other than these are blue dots or immune cells, they don't give us high definition of what's happening with these cells. And so one of the technologies that's come about that we use for this nature paper is the use of single cell RNA sequencing, where you take cells from any tissue or any cells in general, you, and you divide them up not based on how they look under a microscope, but how what genes are being uh, transcribed by individual cells. And you do this for every type of cell there is. And so here what we have done is taken these mice which have myocarditis, We've done single cell RNA sequencing on the immune infiltrates. So we use the trick where we only take those immune cells and then now try to understand are these T cells? And if they're T cells, what kind of T cells there are? That's what you see on the upper right hand of both things. And we've taken controls for comparison. What we learned from these exp uh, experiments is that most of what we see are T cells and macrophages in the uh, uh, myocarditis samples. You see a lot of T cells that's over on the upper right-hand uh, corner of this uh, slide, uh, 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 early figure, as well as a lot of myeloid cells which are consistent with macrophages. And we show this in a bar graph, again, compared to controls, and here we've used different controls. You see significant expansion of the activated T cells as well as significant exaction of macrophages. And that's what we see consistently when we look at either human samples or mouse samples, which is what I'm showing you now, that these are mostly T cells on macrophages. And moreover, these are activated macrophages. Uh, I'm sorry, activated macrophages, but more importantly, activated T cells. Many of the genes are upregulated that are consistent with activation of T cells are upregulated uh, in these samples from these patients or with mice that have the myocarditis. And so you may ask where you showed us previously the slide where the T cell is really driving the ship and these inhibitory molecules like CTLA4 and PD1 are inhibiting things. And now you're telling us when you inhibit the CTLA4 and PD1 for in these patients, the T cells are activated. What I didn't tell you is that not only are these T cells activated, but they're also clonal. They're the same exact T cell uh, that we see in patients or in uh, the mice. And that's important because we are all genetically predisposed to having literally millions of different types of T cells. And that's because at any point we have to uh, beat off, uh, beat infections, such as infection A versus infection B. And what you see here is that many of the T cells that we see in these mouse, mouse samples of myocarditis are clonal. They're the same exact T cell. And so the next question that people may ask, well, if they're the same exact T cell, what are they recognizing since the T cell is predisposed to recognizing an antigen? And at least some early data we have uh, and in this paper that was published last week we show that many of the T cells in the mouse uh, 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 
models that I mentioned to you, as well as human samples that we've gathered, recognize a specific cardiac gene, a gene called MYH6 or alpha mycin heavy chain, which is an important part of the heart and how it beats. And we think this information is very interesting and potentially very useful because it may help us identify the patients who are at risk. And you can imagine a scenario where, for example, tumor suddenly expresses this gene. And so you have this cross-reactivity of these activated T cells that now recognize the hearts. And so this becomes really important and really important to pursue further to better understand potentially who's at risk of developing myocarditis. Now, the other paper that we had come out looks at the sex differences that are true with myocarditis. And I'll mention that very briefly in the next slide. But what I really want you to appreciate from this immunofluorescence of the heart samples, of these are hearts from mice with myocarditis, is that when you look at the heart in a cross-section, so this is a mouse heart, and on the right is a left ventricle, on the, uh, on the left is the right ventricle, you can see these, this green fluorescence, which is CD8-positive T cells. These are specific effector T cells that we think are responsible for the myocarditis to occur. And when you look at this, you see a lot of patchiness. There are a lot of T cells here. There's not exactly a nice rhythm, and certainly they're not in every single heart tissue. And so it really becomes important as we think about these cases of why you have this patchiness that occurs in both patients as well as in uh, uh, the preclinical models. So we and others are doing a lot of work to try to understand these at a very preclinical standpoint. And so what we have done as well as uh, shared these with a lot of really smart people. So I mentioned already some of the nice work with Justin Balco and Doug Johnson, uh, which is looking at immunogenic and antigenic drivers of myocarditis. I've been lucky to collaborate with Yonko Sio and Yelena Levi uh, uh, through a grant that we recently had awarded using novel immune pet tracers to detect myocarditis. And I think this can help us better understand and diagnose myocarditis, which is a big dilemma, as I'll talk about in the next section. The paper that I alluded to is uh, work done in collaboration with Chunru Lin and Liu King Yang, where we have now, we think we have defined the mechanisms behind why sex differences occur in myocarditis. And we think these findings have significance for other forms of myocarditis. In collaboration with Corey Levine, we're doing a lot more work to better define those macrophages that I mentioned to you. What are these macrophages and how are they getting active and how are they communicating with the T cells? And finally, in collaboration with Chris Sorosiak and Tony Latai, her oncology colleagues in Boston, we're looking at mechanisms of cell death, the cardiomyocyte death, that occurs with myocarditis. And I'll go back to this idea of using these clinical models because I, I think that it has given us some ideas about where to go in terms of treatment. But one of the fundamental things we keep thinking about is why would, what is the role of PD-1 and CTLA-4 in the heart anyway, such that the inhibition of the signaling can lead to inflammatory heart disease? So I'm going to switch gears now and talk more about what we're finding clinically. And this has really been a great collaboration with a lot of outstanding people. 
uh, around the world, literally. And these are some of the people that we've put together using a REDCap da database. We initially developed this at Vanderbilt, but as I moved to UCSF, this house here now, and in collaboration with many, many colleagues, many of whom are at the AHA, uh, but special shout out to Dr. Joely Salem, who's now effectively leading this effort. We put this international checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis registry. And as of a month ago, the numbers were somewhere in the order of greater than 750 and almost 800. Then I'm happy to tell you we're nearing in on a thousand cases of checkpoint inhibitor associated myocarditis. These come from 120 institutions in over 17 countries. So what have we learned? So one of the things that becomes problematic when you take cases from around the world is we thought we needed a standard definition to really be able to uh, pick up uh, which cases are truly myocarditis because not every chest pain is myocarditis. And for this reason, uh, we developed with, in collaboration with doc, Dr. Mark Banaka a hierarchical definition of checkpoint inhibitor of course, associated myocarditis. And so I think the couple of take, takeaways from this slide is that you need a combination of things to diagnose myocarditis. You need the right clinical setup and clinical symptoms from the patient. In addition, uh, biomarkers and especially troponin elevation can be very helpful. In addition, imaging can be helpful, although there's no magic uh, imaging tests that can diagnose all the cases. And we use a combination of echo, MRI, and PET many cases to diagnose myocarditis. And finally, probably the gold standard is pathology, being able to get tissue from the heart of patients and examining these. And that's what we do with endomyocardial biopsy. I think one thing to keep in mind is when patients come in with chest pain, they have some EKG changes in troponin, you can have just about any cardiac issues. You can frankly be having an acute coronary syndrome, which is the most obvious and most common diagnosis in all patients when they come through the ER with chest pain or cardiac symptoms. And so one of the key points we made early on is that it's really important to exclude patients with acute coronary syndrome, because again, not every chest pain, not every elevated biomarker or not every EKG change maybe myocarditis. And then from there, we've developed diagnoses where you were, first of all, you need all these tests or as many of the tests as you can gather, you have to rule out acute coronary syndrome. And from there, depending on what the patient presents and what data we have, we can say whether the patient had definite myocarditis, probable myocarditis or possible myocarditis. And I think this is really important to think about this hierarchical definition of uh, who has myocarditis. Now, this group that I mentioned to you, uh, and this is uh, uh, summarized in a nice paper by Dr. Lawrence Lehman, who's in Heidelberg, Germany, have put together a series of steps about how to go about when you see somebody with classic or clinical symptoms that may be suspicious of myocarditis. So everybody needs an EKG and troponin, uh, and I think it's really important that if you have absence of both of these, normal troponin and a normal EKG, uh, you have to really consider other causes in general. However, if you have an abnormal troponin or EKG, now you have to think about the 
workup for the myocarditis, get other EKGs and secondary biomarkers. Think about getting some imaging because at this point you haven't exactly diagnosed myocarditis. And this may be echocardiogram that's easy to get, although many K times you will need advanced imaging with MRI. And in many, many cases, I would have a low suspicion of doing endomyocardial biopsy because as, as we'll talk about, the implication can be pretty significant for the patient. I talked about the concomitant my, uh, skeletal muscle uh, inflammatory issues, and this includes myositis and mycenia gravis. And so I would have a low suspicion of getting neurology or rheumatology colleagues on board and doing uh, 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 diagnostics that may indicate this. And this becomes also important because if you can't do the endomyocardial biopsy because of the concomitance of myositis, you may consider doing skeletal muscle biopsy uh, uh, to more assure the, that the patient, in fact, has myocarditis. Really important to rule out acute coronary syndrome, uh, and this obviously can be done with coronary angiogram or CTA. Uh, I will talk about some of these initial treatments if you think the patient has myocarditis, but for now, one thing that I think most people uh, accept is admit the patient, continuous uh, monitor them, and especially with telemetry, knowing that these patients have, may have significant electrocardiographic disturbances, uh, hold the checkpoint inhibitor, although I presume that's already done when you're in this stage, and give steroids. Uh, and again, this is something that we, I think most people agree would be the initial thing that one would do, even if you're thinking about uh, the uh, patient has, having myocarditis. I think it's also important to think about what other societies tell us about these patients. So a lot of the other societies say something very similar to what I mentioned with the Lawrence Lehman paper. Although there are some parts that I disagree with, and I'm happy to sort of point these out. So this is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Again, I think some of these early suggested testings is absolutely what we agree with 100% doing an EKG, doing a troponin, doing an echo, knowing that these are very easy to do in most places, but then think about getting cardiologists on board and get advanced imaging and or biopsy on the patients. I think one thing that's not clear is this grading system, and this is something I don't necessarily agree with. And this suggests that dividing grades of the patient based on basically degree of symptoms and the biomarkers that they have. The problem here is we don't, the symptoms may actually be pretty subtle. And so the symptoms or with or with, with uh, the symptoms and merely a biomarker increase doesn't necessarily point to uh, the patient having myocarditis. And again, I wanna urge people to consider the other testing that I mentioned, these other ones in the bottom that where cardiologists may guide an MRI and a catheterization uh, and specifically an endocardial biopsy uh, because the uh, degree of biomarker and or symptoms shouldn't be sufficient to drive the ship in terms of grading patients in different categories. And I would argue that if you have suspicion for myocarditis, even if they're grade one, there's no reason to give checkpoint inhibitors, and I would certainly agree with any patient. I would hold until you have further evaluation of the patient. 
these are uh, ESC guidelines that came out just a few months ago. These are led by uh, uh, some of great colleagues from Europe. And again, I think they point to many things that we all agree with that I mentioned to you. Get the diagnosis early and do this using a myriad of tests. Now, what I must caution you is in this is diagnosis is based on symptoms, troponin, and EKG abnormalities. And of course, the key point I want to keep in mind is this by itself is not sufficient to, to diagnose myocarditis because certainly somebody with a heart attack could have some symptoms, could have an increased troponin, and could have EKG abnormalities. And again, just these three tests without an MRI, without advanced imaging and or biopsy and ruling out other causes really is not sufficient to drive myocarditis. And I think most people also agree that uh, 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 once you do establish myocarditis, admitting, watching the patient carefully and giving them steroids. And then finally, these are the NCCN guidelines. These came out earlier in 2022, which again point, the same, point to the same thing, EKG, telemetry, echocardiogram. These are again initial tests we do with myocarditis, although those, that's what you, just gets you in the door. And I think certainly in many patients, most patients we need, almost every patient, we need advanced imaging, let's say an MRI and or biopsy to really diagnose myocarditis. And so with that, we'll move on to a case that we actually both of us encountered at Vanderbilt. And this was a very interesting case. So I was, uh, 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 this patient actually presented on a Sunday to an outside hospital. Uh, it was a 75-year-old male with some EKG changes, shortness of breath, and a troponin that was 10. And so being cardiologists and good cardiologists, they of course thought immediately this patient had a myocardial infarction transferred them to the Vanderbilt cath lab, uh, and uh, at which point uh, the patient underwent uh, an angiogram. There was a occlusion that was seen in the LAD. Again, the patient is 75. Not clear if that was the contributing factor, but it was 70% nonetheless. And so uh, our interventional cardiologist put in a stent uh, uh, and sent them to the CCU because the patient looked a little bit sick. The problem was uh, Sunday night rolls around now, and the patient continues to be sicker. The troponin, which was we figured would go down, or the team figured would go down to uh, after getting the stent placed, continued to increase. The patient actually go, went on to uh, 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 go into complete heart block and then had to be intubated. And so this is the EKG uh, that sort of uh, where the patient's initial EKG but as you can see, the patient deteriorated enough such that they needed a pacemaker placed. And so at this point, something very interesting happened. Deb Dixon, who is one of the, our fellows now, who was a resident at the time, actually talked to the patient, not to the patient, but to the family, because the patient at this point had been intubated. And it turned out this patient, who had been treated at the outside, had kidney cancer, had received sunitinib uh, before, but was now just started on a VEGF inhibitor, a drug like sunitinib, as well as an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And in fact, had received two doses, and the first dose was received a month ago. And the second dose was received five days before admission. And so, Doug, uh, again, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit since you are now uh, a cardiologist. I just said you are as good as any cardiologist. What would you do next here? 
Well, as an immunotherapy doctor, you know, uh, you know, every if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So I would be very worried that this is a checkpoint inhibitor associated, and I'd be very apt to give this patient high dose steroids. Uh, although I would call you first. Yes. So I think this is really important. The patient's sick. You may not get a prompt diagnosis early on, which, as we'll talk about, may involve imaging, which was going to be tough in this patient given how sick they were. Uh, but I think one of the areas for us to think about is how we have to think about getting biopsies early. And Dr. that's Dr. Iliescu walking out of the room. He's the interventionalist at MD Anderson. They're probably asking him to get a biopsy on a patient as we speak. So, uh, And so I think this is really important in terms of what we think of as definitive myocarditis, probable myocarditis, and, or possible myocarditis. And I think this is really important to think about this. Not every patient can get a gold standard uh, uh, biopsy. Not every patient can get a diagnostic uh, CMR. Uh, uh, and I think thinking about how much we think about the myocarditis and how we diagnose it, especially with what's in our arsenal uh, in terms of what we can provide at various places for the patient, I think becomes important. In my personal opinion, this is the one case where we have to be more aggressive and tissue is the issue. So I think for this type of syndrome, because the diagnosis and correctly diagnosing these patients is so important, both in terms of what we do for the patient, but also potentially withholding life-saving immunotherapy, uh, I think we have to be right on the diagnosis. And I, I really myself think, and maybe we can expand this for questions later, uh, that tissue is the issue. And I think for this type of myocarditis, just like giant cell myocarditis, uh, being able to cath the patient, ruling out coronary uh, artery disease, uh, acute coronary syndrome, but also getting tissue would be very important. And uh, I think the tissue, and this is exactly what happened with this patient, this is the biopsy, of course. The patient had received one dose of high-growth salumedrol, uh, but we don't expect that to really ameliorate in terms of the inflammation. And we have some nice preclinical to support this, and the patient had classic myocarditis. I think the other take-home point is checking a CK on these patients. And if you can't do a myocardial biopsy, I think there's some utility of doing skeletal muscle biopsy, which is obviously much easier, and that can be done just because you want to be right with the diagnosis and not uh, sort of be treating something that you think is myocarditis, but you don't have actual proof. And so I think there's been some nice work by various people, uh, including uh, Dr. Tom Nealon at Mass General, showing that uh, high-dose steroids can be effective. This is a retrospective study, uh, and although many of the guidelines in oncology say one mic per kg, really giving a high dose initially is what we have, basically, and what should be considered in these patients. Uh, and I think that's really important for us to think about. Even before you have, you can do the biopsy, as was in this case. Uh, however, in this particular case, the patient continued to deteriorate. And so what can we do next? I'm going to now move on to another case. This is a male, 67-year-old. We're back with our friend lung cancer again. So again, complicating things more in terms of what the shortness of breath, uh, which is uh, what this patient pre presented with, presents with. So this patient had combination checkpoint inhibitors, got chemotherapy on top of that came in with shortness of breath, 
and said his heart's racing. Troponin was 10. EKG looked like this. And uh, uh, I guess I think the next step in this case, the patient got a biopsy. Uh, interestingly, the EKG looked pretty okay. Not much on the echo, and this is sort of a very recurrent theme. The EF can be completely normal, even in patients who are doing very poorly. Again, I think one thing to take home is this, again, could be myocarditis, but it also could be acute coronary syndrome with a troponin that's high, nondescript EKG, again. Uh, and so I think ruling out coronary artery disease would be important. But I think uh, making sure your interventional colleague, uh, or if you're actually doing the case yourself, stopping then and saying, well, there's no coronary artery disease, what else could this be? And while you're there, I know that probably requires uh, another stick, at least if you're in the US, uh, you can get a biopsy and this patient again had uh, uh, classic myocarditis. So in this patient, uh, got troponin, uh, got, uh, methylprednisolone, uh, one gram, high dose. And the troponin kind of went, kind of stayed around 10, went up to 13, but then was coming down to seven. And we were saying, well, the patient may recover and actually do okay. In fact, the patient was doing fairly well. And this is actually one of the first cases I had at UCSF when I moved there, except the overnight uh, resident in this case got a, a new call saying the patient had developed a complete uh, a new heart block. And so the question that really comes about is, what do our oncology colleagues say in terms of what to do for these patients? Sure, yeah, we've, we've learned some lessons for some toxicities that don't respond to steroids. For example, if colitis doesn't respond, things like infliximab can be very helpful, which is, makes a lot of sense. Infliximab works for Crohn's disease and other types of GI inflammation. And so we've tried to learn, you know, take those lessons that we've learned there and with our cardiology colleagues, try to figure out, you know, what, what do we do for the, the cases of myocarditis that don't respond? And unfortunately, uh, we're still working on it, I think. Uh, so there's a number of different potential options. There's, you know, successful case reports with a number of these different treatments, ranging from abatacept to mycophenolate. Uh, I would say at this point, it's it, controversial, wouldn't you say, as far as what to do, when to start these other agents. Do you wait till the patient fails? Do you just know up front that these are bad cases and, and start initially? Uh, but these, there are some guidelines out there that can hopefully you know, guide and, and help us as we try to manage these patients. Yeah, I think one of the key things is we're really in a, a data-free zone. Um, I think the other thing we think of as cardiologists is what mechanical support, if the, in the cases where there, there's EF drop, uh, uh, can come into play as well. Uh, but I'll be the first to admit what we do next after the steroids is still sort of an area I think a lot of us are trying to learn from. So what do the other guidelines I mentioned to you indicate in terms of other treatments we can give this patient? Well, I discussed with you this Lawrence Lehman paper, where again, in the absence of uh, the patient getting better on just steroids and or watching, uh, I think we have to think about higher level care, certainly higher level care. Patients probably have to go to the intensive care unit. But I think now we have to think about other agents. And, uh, and in the guidelines, people mentioned mycophenolate, abatacept, and other investigational therapies that may be used. On the right here is the ASCO guidelines. And again, these mentioned the high dose steroids. But then the uh, uh, sort of the guidelines uh, really, again, suggest a myriad of other 
additional immunosuppressives that one may use. Uh, and based on some papers we'll talk about, alemtuzumab and abatacept are important considerations. I'll get to that momentarily. And finally, this is the uh, recently published ESC guidelines, where again, once you give steroids and once the patient is, continues to do poorly, you may consider it a myriad of uh, 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 secondary uh, uh, immunosuppressive therapies for the use uh, in these patients. Now, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. A lot of, there's this, a lot of discussion about abatacept's use. And I'll tell you where we sort of started thinking about this. Again, I mentioned to you that we had made these uh, uh, preclinical models of checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis where we genetically engineer mice which have deficiency in the gene CTLA4 and they have complete null of the PD-1 gene. These are the targets of the immune checkpoint inhibitors that I mentioned to you. And so when you have an immunos, uh, a, a mouse that's deficient in CTLA-4 and PD-1, that's in red here, these mice died because of significant myocarditis. And that's taught us a lot, number of things. Number one, even though that these different checkpoints sit in different parts and probably different cells, in fact, uh, they interact genetically in reasons, in ways that we didn't appreciate, such that when you make the genetic knockout, uh, of both mice, you get the myocarditis manifesting. I think the other thing that I will not have time to talk about is some uh, uh, unpublished work from our lab where we think CTLA-4 signaling surprisingly has an important role in cardiovascular biology that we never appreciated before. And so that's really important as well to take into consideration. And so that, this brings up the question of whether we can introduce CTLA-4 back or take away the inhibition of CTLA-4 uh, to see whether we can help these mice. And of course, the mice now present a nice preclinical models to test any hypotheses. And so the, as I mentioned here, we have made genetically deficient mice. And so one of the things we're doing in the lab is reintroduce the CTLA-4 gene uh, to see whether we can attenuate or take away, in fact, the myocarditis that we see in these red mice. And that's an ongoing experiment. But you may ask, well, that's really tough. You're not going to necessarily do genetic engineering in patients. So how are you going to deal with that in patients? Well, it, it looks like it turns out there's a drug that works opposite of how ipilimumab works. And that is a drug called abatacept. Abatacept works as a CTLA-4 IG, and very indirectly, it activates CTLA-4 and does this by capturing the ligand of CD, uh, CTLA-4, which is CD8086, and not allowing and offsetting the work that ipilimumab or uh, this anti-CTLA-4 is doing. So indirectly, you activate uh, uh, CTLA-4 signaling. And it turns out when you treat these various mice that I mentioned, you attenuate the myocarditis. These are female mice treated with, these are genetic engineer mice. I showed you these graphs before, where you have these uh, drop of mice dying. But once you give a abatacept, these genetic, these red mice, the ones that have the genetic knockout, actually live now. And so this proved to us that in at least a preclinical model, we could treat myocarditis. 
And so this nice work that was actually extended to patients by Dr. Joel E. Solomon, this is now a pretty famous New England Journal of Medicine paper where in a patient who had significant uh, 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 cardiac issues, uh, a checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis was also had significant myositis and who had, was not res responding to steroids and other interventions like IVIG. Uh, uh, and a patient that was doing so poorly was actually paralyzed because of his significant myositis. Uh, after getting a batisep that's seen in the bottom here, the patient literally walked in the hospital. And this proved to us that at least anecdotally in this N of 1, the patients may be treated effectively. Now, there are two ongoing trials now, one looking at the proper dose of abatacept in these patients, and a second of giving everybody who comes through the door who's already getting steroids abatacept or no abatacept. And so this is a placebo-controlled study. One thing we don't actually know is what the optimal dose of abatacept should be. Uh, is that the label for the drug is 10 milligrams over meter uh, kilograms. And abatacept is a drug that has been developed for rheumatologic diseases. But one of the key things to do is actually measure what it's supposed to bind to, which is CD8086, and look for occupancy in terms of better dosing this. And so this really becomes important to do because it may be that the abatacept dose may be underdosed at 10 milligrams with CD80 and 86, and so really measuring CD80, 86 occupancy, which is target of abatacept, would be a good way to know about what the optimal dose of abatacept should be for it to work. It has a long time of onset, and so one of the questions we've been struggling with is should we be using abatacept in conjunction with other strong and perhaps short-acting immunosuppressive therapy to do this, and we're working on this and testing a couple of uh, candidates here that would especially work well with abatacept. There's some heterogeneity with myocarditis. I mean, we talked about this ASCO guidelines with different grading of uh, myocarditis, and clearly not all checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis are the same, and not everybody probably should be treated with abatacept. And we really need to do a better job of describing what the high-risk individuals are and finally, one thing that people need to keep in mind is we don't actually know what the abatacept is doing on the tumors. Uh, and this is something that we're now currently testing in preclinical settings. And so one example of this is this work, again, led by Dr. Joel E. Salem. This is a patient, anecdote, anecdotally, patient N of 1, where CD80, 86 occupancy has been measured. The abatacept has been properly dosed. And in this case, uh, uh, he used a short-acting agent, a roxolitinib, a JAK inhibitor, that seems to have that initial effect before a abatacept comes. And at this AHA, uh, and in work that will be published soon, you hear about much higher series, much higher number of patients that have been used in this protocol with significant success in terms of best treating them. And so I think we look forward to these data so that we can best help our patients. So in this case, the patient got a abatacept. This is based on uh, some interesting data I was, that uh, my colleague, Dr. Salem in Paris, actually shared with me. Uh, and the patient got 20 milligrams per kg, which is actually above the dose that we generally think of with abatacept. Uh, and in this case, the troponin uh, uh, kept going down, and the pa patient's arrhythmia is actually 
uh, ended. This is really important, and I think this is something we can talk about. We've debated about this for time. This is a serious problem. Admittedly, it occurs in a very small subset of patients, and I would consider 1% a small subset. Should we do something more in terms of screening patients at baseline and in terms of what we do for follow-up for these patients? So screening and surveillance. I personally think every patient who's going to get an immune checkpoint inhibitor should get a baseline EKG and biomarker troponin. And I'll show you some data why that's particularly important. So that's the screening part. This is before you give the drug. But I think in terms of what we do with surveillance, uh, it become, it's something we have debated for some time uh, uh, as to whether we should do continuous EKGs or troponins as a surveillance mechanism on every single patient, recognizing that 99% do quite well and there's no uh, uh, issues. And so at least at this point, and for all of these uh, sort of thoughts, we always have oncologists to kind of make sure we don't go too far the other way. For high-risk patients, I think a lot of people agree we should have biomarkers uh, that should be done every two weeks during the first six weeks of therapy. Now, how you define high-risk becomes really controversial. I guess I showed you the data where combination therapy is clearly a risk factor. But what about a patient whose EF is 30% or 35%? Should we be screening or doing surveillance tests on those patients. I would love to kind of think about this and debate uh, this. Uh, for this particular manuscript, and this was led by Dr. Lawrence Lehman, who's at Heidelberg, Germany, we didn't think EKG serially would be very uh, uh, helpful. And that's because I think we're going to get pushback from oncologists who are effectively seeing these patients, stopping their clinic, and doing EKGs on the patients. Uh, but of course, everything else, if the patient has symptoms or has any abnormalities, being a good doctor and thinking about all the different things is certainly fair game. But this is something I think we're going to go back to, Doug, and uh, talk about and see whether your thoughts have evolved, especially over the years. And the reason, uh, but even with this, I want you to think about this and uh, uh, be careful because I, what I mentioned to you was in many cancers, we're now combining therapies. In kidney cancer, and this is a nice paper that was led by my, our colleague Brian Reaney, who's a kidney cancer doctor. These are patients with, who had never been treated before, frontline treatment, new diagnosis of metastatic kidney cancer, who were randomized to two arms, patients who receive VEGF inhibitors, which up until now has been standard of care, and in another arm, they would receive a VEGF inhibitor, albeit a different one, and a checkpoint inhibitor. And I think one of the sort of the things that was very interesting, as every patient in this trial had an echo and a troponin, is the first uh, part, which is up here, which is how many patients have a significant drop in EF uh, when you compare it to the baseline. And we can define these various ways, whether it's greater than a 10% drop or uh, reaching a, a minimum, uh, uh, a maximum that we determine for the echo. So, so upper, upper, lower, I guess, lower end of normal for these patients. And a significant number have a drop in their ejection fraction. Now, is that the checkpoint inhibitor? And are they having mild cases of myocarditis? Or is it the VEGF inhibitor? And it becomes really tough to decipher this. And so this is the world we're going to have to live in. 
The other side of this that was really interesting, again, these are frontline patients, never got any treatment before, is for this particular study, everybody received a biomarker. And this, to our surprise, 19% uh, uh, of the patients had a troponin T that was positive at baseline. 1% to 2% of the patients had a troponin I that was uh, 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 positive at baseline. And uh, up to 20% of the patients either had a positive BNP or pro-NT-BNP uh, in, the, in the case. And again, this kind of calls attention to the complexity that we live in with respect to patients who've never gotten treatment. This was baseline, who already have abnormal uh, 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 biomarkers at baseline. So I think checking the baseline and making sure the subsequent check that you see is not actual, an actual increase, I think, becomes really important. Uh, this is the last case. It's good. We're going to go through this quickly because I think the real thing is really getting interactions from you. There are many questions that have come through the ILON line and so forth. Is, uh, uh, is another quick case. This is a 70-year-old prostate cancer patient who received a novel checkpoint inhibitor. And this is what the MRI shows. And in this case, the patient had myopericarditis with most of the symptoms of the chest pain being explained by uh, 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 this myopericarditis, as you can see here, is slight troponin increase, but I think, I think everybody on the MRI can recognize the pericardial issue that comes about. Again, we treated this patient with high-dose steroids, but I think one of the things I learned from my colleague, Alan Klein, who's probably the world expert in pericarditis, at the Cleveland Clinic, who's been seeing these patients for many years, is sort of, st at least he starts with NSAIDs, uh, 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 colchicine, and then moves to steroids. And I think the issue with this patient uh, was when you try to titrate off steroids for pericarditis. And I think there's been some nice studies, uh, including a New England Journal of Medicine paper by Allen, uh, where other agents such as IL-1 beta uh, inhibitors uh, can be helpful for patients with general pericarditis. And again, I think the challenge is applying these to our patients. And I think this is uh, our last couple of slides. Really a multidisciplinary team is critical. And I talked about Doug Johnson, who's here. And when I was at Vanderbilt, we were fortunate to have Victoria Finnemore, who's sitting in the back, who was our nurse. And I think she was many times the glue that makes sure uh, we were all, everybody was sort of talking uh, about these patients. And it really, I think, having a multidisciplinary team to approach these patients, uh, given that the IRAEs are not just in the heart, but other places like uh, uh, myasthenia-like gravis, myasthenia-gravis-like syndrome, uh, uh, getting a neurologist or a rheumatologist could be kind of important. So we spent the last hour or so talking about checkpoint inhibitor-associated myocarditis. I mentioned very briefly that checkpoint inhibitors can have other cardiovascular effects. But one thing that is important for take in mind for all the budding cardio-oncologists out there is that the effects of immune-based therapies extend beyond uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And that's because there are a number of other drugs that are immune activators are being tested clinically. And this is nice work done by Dr. Alan Beck. He's uh, one of the rising stars in the field of cardio-oncology and is recently appointed assistant professor at UCSF. And he wrote this very nice circulation research article a year ago, really pointing out what these different drugs are. So much of this 
uh, uh, topic and this last hour has been focusing on the, what's up here, which are the immune checkpoint inhibitors. But it turns out our oncology colleagues have developed a number of other more potent ways of activating the immune system. And I think most people in the audience by now have heard of CAR T cells. These are T cells that we take from individual patients, re-engineer these T cells such that they can recognize a tumor marker. In this case, these drugs have been approved for a tumor marker called CD19 that's only present in B cells. So this drug is effective for B cell malignant, certain B cell malignancies, the CAR T cells that have been approved, and there are two so far that have been approved. And these uh, drugs become very effective for treating these specific types of cancer. I think one thing to keep in mind is when you treat, when you give patients cellular therapy uh, and re-engineer T, uh, T cells that you give them in the form of CAR-T, these patients can have significant inflammatory issues that arise. This includes a condition called cytokine release syndrome where patients have significant vascular and cardiac issues on top of other things that can arise in patients. In addition, a growing number of companies are developing so-called bispecific T-cell engagers. These are sort of the higher generation, if you will, of these CAR T-cells. You no longer have to take, go in, take the cells and re-engineer them. Rather, you have a linker that links your, in, your body's own T-cells uh, to the immune cell or to the cancer cell. In this case, again, these have been approved for CD19 directed therapies. And, uh, uh, and at least one drug has been approved as of the time of this discussion. And again, these patients may have uh, a number of uh, issues that arise related to the cytokine release syndrome, although the degree is less than what we see in the CAR T cells. And so when you think about these various cardiovascular issues, we talked a lot about what's on the left with this checkpoint inhibitor-associated myocarditis, and we alluded to the various mechanisms that may be at play here. But I think it's also important to think about these pro-inflammatory cytokines, this so-called cytokine release syndrome that I mentioned, uh, which again can have a number of systemic manifestations, but also a number of cardiac issues including vascular leak syndrome, hypertension, arrhythmias, and cardiomyopathy. In addition, as more of these called T-cells or bispecifically T-cell engagers come on, there is a risk of these T-cells by accident recognizing something in the heart itself. And there was a very famous example uh, of a drug developed at the University of Pennsylvania where the patient's uh, T-cells had been re-engineered bind a tumor-specific gene, but by accident, those T-cells had uh, recognized Titan, which is a very important cardiac gene. And these pain pain patients uh, actually had cardiogenic sense, uh, death and died. And this is a very famous example of an off-target, off-tumor effect. In addition, as new T-cells come in, new CAR T-cells, which are now recognizing not just CD19, but other uh, T cell, uh, other tumor cell targets, you may have cases where those tumor cell targets by accident are expressed in the heart. And that's something that we refer to as on target off tumor toxicity. And I think it's really important for us to think about this uh, as these new drugs come to the market. Again, the mechanism here, I should argue, is completely different than what we see with the checkpoint inhibitor associated myocarditis.
I mentioned in this slide the, what's on the right is cytokine release syndrome. And some of us have wondered over the years whether this mimics what we see with SARS-CoV. Uh, that's what you see on the left here. Again, the patients who have severe SARS-CoV have cardiac issues. There's, I don't think there's any question of that. But these patients don't have necessarily classic myocarditis, but they may have cytokine snoring that mimics in many ways what we see in these patients. So we have argued that by studying these patients with CAR T cells, we may understand better the underlying pathophysiology of other cardiac issues. And finally, uh, uh, while our oncology colleagues have taught us that you could take T cells, re-engineer them, and target a tumor cell, some very nice work done by John Epstein at the University of Pennsylvania actually suggests we can take this and use this trick to re-engineer T cells and instead target cardiac stuff, including cardiac fibrosis. And this may be at least one strategy we they can think of in the future where one may actually treat uh, cardiovascular issues by these genetic tricks that we have learned from our oncology colleagues. At UCSF, we have a new section of cardio-oncology and immunology. And you may ask, well, what's the immunology have to do with anything? Well, it turns out we have a lot of inflammatory heart cardiovascular diseases that we don't understand. And if we just focus on myocarditis, uh, there are many different types of myocarditis that can arise. And classically, what we have done is take a little piece of the tissue, look at these under a microscope, and decide what type of myocarditis this patient has. The truth is, this is using technology that was effectively developed 50 years ago, right? This is merely take doing microscopy. And depending on how much coffee the pathologist had, they may or may not see eosinophils, which may point to eosinophil myocarditis. And some of the technology I alluded to earlier in this talk, such as single cell gene analysis, such as multiplex immunofluorescence, you can now think about doing in a my, my, more systematically and in a high throughput manner, determine more details about the what kind of inflammatory heart disease this patient has. And we have this vision at UCSF to really extend this to other forms of inflammatory heart disease beyond garden variety myocarditis. Uh, what about cardiac transplant rejection as we do do more and more transplants in patients? What about some nice studies showing that many vascular issues, including hypertension, are immune-based? What about a condition called clonal hematopoiesis or a CHIP uh, where you have genetic mutations in blood cells that are important risk factors for uh, 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 cardio cardiovascular disease. And so we and others are really ex excited about this next step because I think some of the, what we've learned in the, in the lead up to understanding better about checkpoint myocarditis or checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis may actually have significant relevance to other forms of cardiovascular disease. And so there's a lot of exciting things for us to think about for the next step of uh, 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 with uh, in this field and in the field of cardio-oncology. So I think at this point, we're going to go over to the question and answers. Now, I'm going to have the chance to put Dr. Doug Johnson on the spot for a couple of these. Uh, and so uh, 
And I think one of the things that comes up, we talked a lot about immune checkpoint inhibitors specifically, but what about CAR Ts and what do we do for those? I know as a melanoma doctor, you don't use them necessarily as much, but uh, uh, as I've learned, Doug wears many hats. One of this is uh, sort of leading this immunotherapy program. And so what do we do for CAR T patients? What kind of toxicities we see? Uh, so you could, if you could kind of expand on that. Yeah, I think we're still learning. Uh, but I think in general, CAR T, uh, these are actually engineered cells that are directly given to the patients, mostly to target hematologic malignancies. And these basically, the main cardiac side effects of these are more related, uh, to my knowledge, more with cytokines. So you're basically, you know, giving patients, uh, you know, the ones that have cytokine release syndrome, it's almost a sepsis-like syndrome. So you're talking about uh, arrhythmias and so forth, uh, tachycardia at minimum, and of course, you know, strain on the heart from, from that. Um, my, to my knowledge, there's not a whole lot of direct myocarditis or other cardiac toxicities other than just sort of the extra strain on the heart. And so for that reason, you want to certainly be careful uh, when thinking about baseline cardiovascular status for some of the patients that are going to get some of these treatments, because you certainly don't want to, you know, put somebody who's already got bad cardiovascular disease into uh, and give them an MI when you give them treatment. Good, good. And I think this is also kind of a moving field because the classic CAR Ts that have been approved are very uh, tissue and specifically B cell specific. They generally target CD19 which is only expressed in B cells. So the issues we see are kind of this uh, vascular leak syndrome. And uh, some nice studies have shown there are actually patients can get mild cardiomyopathy or a troponin increase or AFib. Uh, although one of the questions, uh, one of the issues I push back on is what's the significance? A lot of patients who are really sick who get the cytokine release syndrome can have atrial fibrillation. Is that a cardiac specific thing? versus a more general patient being really sick and having this uh, autoimmune phenomena that's uh, sort of occurring. I think the other issue is as we moved on with other CAR-Ts that are now targeting other targets besides CD19, we may actually see cardiac-specific effects. So it's something I think we should really uh, uh, think about. And so the other question I have here is what should we do in terms of EKG uh, uh, that's obtained? How often should the EKG be checked uh, in oncology patients who are receiving immunotherapy? And this is a question that we really grappled with a lot. I've, I think everybody deserves a baseline EKG and baseline biomarker. The problem is if you're a busy oncologist having to stop your clinic and again, we're not involved in, as cardiologists in the care of these patients at this point. This is about surveillance now. Having to do the EKG in a busy oncology practice, and then more, uh, as I've learned, more worrying for many oncologists, having to interpret the EKG can be very troubling. And so this is an issue that we went back and forth on. And I at least think for us in cardiology to think about EKG when we're seeing the patients is absolutely important. But as oncologists, expecting them to do an EKG, no one's, I, in my opinion, is going to do it. And I, I'd love to hear Doug's thoughts on this. I think biomarkers is another thing, and that's why at least for that set of uh, 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 what I would only call consensus statements, we thought doing the biomarkers would be much easier because you add it on to other labs that we check. Yeah, I mean, my sense of the data is certainly that troponins are, are pretty darn specific for myocarditis, and so getting the EKGs, um, where you're going to have so many nonspecific findings and so forth. This seems like a nightmare to, to me as an oncologist, but uh, 
So, you know, obviously, if, if we felt like it really moved the needle, we would do it. But I think, it, to me, I'm not convinced that it will. So I was kind of expecting coming to a cardio-oncology to see this. Uh, next question, which is, what's the role of strain in these patients? Now, as some of you know, I'm not a huge fan of strain in general, I think. Uh, uh, and there's an editorial, uh, myself and Ron Wittellis, who's at Stanford, wrote for a very nice study that was done for other indications. These are anthracycline patients uh, in Jack last year. Um, uh, but here, I, I, there's actually some nice data, although I'm going to kind of put this in a different context from, again, Dr. Nealon, showing that strain can be sensitive for detecting myocarditis. My issue with strain, however, is many times in these patients, we don't have a sensitivity problem. We have a specificity problem. Uh, where the troponin increase or the strain abnormality could be, again, just about any cardiac issue or even non-cardiac issue. So I think the really, I think for us, uh, the really sort of the challenge will be having specific uh, uh, platforms to think about. And so we're doing this in a couple of contexts. Some of you may have seen a very nice New England Journal of Medicine paper by Dr. Pilar Martin, who's in Spain, looking at garden variety myocarditis and how a certain microRNA could be very specific for detecting myocarditis and, in fact, distinguishing myocarditis from other forms of uh, ischemia or myocarditis from ischemia in patients. And whether that applies to checkpoint inhibitor-associated myocarditis would be sort of important. And then we think about other forms of imaging and just for thoughts, uh, I like to think about PET imaging. Of course, we use FDG PET, which is a pain to do, not necessarily specific, but what about if we use a new tracer? There are many immune-based tracers that are coming through the pipeline, and I think in the, in the future, we may be looking at other ways where we actually address the specificity problem. So that's at least uh, what I think uh, 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 in terms of that question. Uh, um, and so here's a tough one, Doug. Uh, what about uh, uh, patients who have COVID around the same time? I know you wrote a very nice paper on this issue because you get the immune checkpoint inhibitors, you get COVID, which has a lot of autoimmune phenomena. And what do you do for those patients? Do you stop treatment or... Yeah, it's certainly a, a complicated question. You know, we and several, a lot of other groups have looked do patients who get COVID while they're actively on checkpoint inhibitors, do they have worse outcomes? Uh, and, and it seems like the answer is generally no. There's you know, maybe some data that lung cancer patients may do worse, but it's always hard to know, are they doing worse for other reasons as well? So it certainly seems like those patients do okay. And so we initially were quite concerned to use checkpoint inhibitors in the context of uh, the pandemic, but we've uh, certainly become much more comfortable with that given, given the availability of the data. Certainly that doesn't answer your question about if somebody comes in with a concern for myocarditis, is it COVID myocarditis? Is it vaccine myocarditis? Is it uh, immunotherapy myocarditis? Uh, and certainly that doesn't necessarily answer the question, but um, you know, it does seem like these agents are safe to use in this, in this era. The other quick thing I wanted to point out that I don't think we did is sometimes these patients have respiratory dis distress out of proportion to what you would think on their cardiac exam. And so in those patients, think about diaphragm, you know, that's, that's the one issue that we've had several patients that seem to be getting better. Their troponin's going down, but you can't extubate them. Why can't you extubate them? Their lungs seem fine. It's in, so think about the diaphragm in those cases as well. 
And I think the, the, both with that and as well as another issue, which is the dose of abatacept, which is another question here. I think everybody, uh, if people are interested, there's going to be some nice data from Dr. Salem later today that sort of calls attention to this, both this issue of skeletal muscle abnormality, which can be diaphragmitis, frankly, and these patients get hypercapnic. Uh, they're probably some of the high-risk patients as well, as well as thinking about the dose of abatacept. Uh, there's at least one trial looking at a regular dose of 10 mg per kg. I'm not sure that's the right dose to use these patients because as anybody who's looked at how abatacept has indeed developed early on, uh, it, you really have to look at the uh, receptor occupancy, which is this molecule called CD8086 uh, for these patients. But how do, you, how do we monitor these patients over time? How often do we do echocardiograms? And I mentioned 50% of the patients may have a low uh, normal EF, even though they have, may have fulminant myocarditis. And at least in our group, we've been doing this every three months initially, kind of following them. Uh, again, this is a patient that has done well. Uh, uh, and now I think the big thing is they're now engaged with a cardiologist, hopefully, where it's less uh, of a burden for the, uh, for us to do EKG and echocardiogram uh, compared to an oncologist who has to, again, just think about how busy their practice is and they have to order an echo and interpret an echo, order an EKG and interpret an, the EKG itself. And again, I think maybe I can turn this back to you one more time. Uh, I know a number of uh, institutions have put together nice uh, multidisciplinary programs and I think a lot of people here could be thinking, well, I'm a cardiologist at the end. How do we combine sources with the oncologists? And I know you have a nice program at Vanderbilt called Vpoint, which is a multidisciplinary uh, uh, sort of program. So in terms of program building, any tips or anything in terms of how people here could proceed, talk to the oncology colleagues, and uh, put together multidisciplinary programs? Well, I think certainly it's important to, you know, ha have the go-to person uh, from the clinical standpoint to, to help deal with these things. I, I think it's, it's, these are, these are uh, pretty new clinical syndromes. And so I think a lot of people are excited about learning more about them, characterizing them, treating them better. And so I think just, just, um, you know, there, there's a lot of excitement about treating these things. So, you know, just finding other excited people is, is I think uh, the key. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SFP 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.